Welcome to the Tabletop Gaming Magazine podcast. I'm Chris Eckett, the editor of the magazine. I'm joined today by the uh, world famous. Is that fair? No. The uh, infamous? No, that's, uh, that's, that's bad. Really, infamous that's bad. is bad. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> Paul Grogan. In, yes, fa- famous in Columpton, but actually I'm not. I, I don't think anybody who lives in the same town as me actually knows what I do for a living, yeah. apart from the person who's in the same house as me. Even people we know in my local town are like, games, what, you mean like Monopoly? And it's like, no, no, yeah, no, no, no. So, <laughs> so, yes, we're joined today by the wonderful uh, Paul Grogan of Gaming Rules. Exclamation mark, don't forget to pronounce yes, the exclamation I- I see, yes. I looked at it, I thought, I've done that wrong, haven't I? Yes. It's a gaming no, rules, a, a statement, uh, as well as a... Uh... As well as, yeah. Which, which is great. I mean, it works. It was, it was a friend of mine from uh, years and years ago that came up with the name when I, was, when I was searching for what name I would have for the channel. And he came up with it. And he said, if you put the exclamation mark at the end, it's got a double meaning. And I was like, brilliant. What's funny is that the official, because gaming rules isn't just, well, it is just me. But it's a, it's a registered company. It, it, it is my company. It's registered with Companies House in the UK. And the exclamation mark is officially part of the company's That's name. <laughs> but half of the web forms that I fill in for the inland revenue and everything else, they won't accept the exclamation it, mark. Yeah. And it's like, oh. <laughs> so yeah. anyway, thank you very much for having me on. Yeah, it's very good. And uh, we and uh, as you say, yes, this is the... Um... Uh, this is a particularly nice chat to have because uh, you are as um, madly embedded in the industry as uh, as I am, uh, in the sense that you touch a million games um, yeah. all the time. Uh, you're not just working on your own games, for example, uh, mm-hmm. as many as many designers do. Um, and so uh, we get to do things like have that little uh, moan that um, uh, people come up to us and say, "Oh, a magazine about games." What you 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 record videos about games all all the time? Are there that many games out there? And yes. you say yes. Well, we published this thirty that came out last month that we <laughs> that we talked about. Yeah. And there's ones we couldn't even talk about. <laughs> so um, so yes. But today we're going to talk about um, teaching, uh, teaching games, game games rules, uh, and all that sort of stuff. And then we're going to get some top five tips from you for teaching yeah. games towards the end. Um, but before that, shall we just um, have you introduce yourself for the I guess one or two people who don't know who you actually are. Um, yeah, so my name's Paul Grogan. Uh, I've been a gamer since uh, forever. Um, you know, I, I, I started gaming, obviously, as a kid, but I got into board games in the sort of early to mid-80s, uh, when I also dabbled with role-playing games and things like this. Now, back in the 80s, we had a limited selection of board games. There were things like Civilization, Acquire, Axis and Allies, and then Games Workshop started branching out into their early board games. So I've been board gaming for a long, long time. I've done a lot of role-playing games. I've done bits of wargaming. Uh, I got quite into serious, seriously into uh, collectible card games in the 90s. But then in about 98 or so, 98 to 99, I switched into what is now the world of hobby board games, Euro games, whatever. So these games existed, uh, you know, but they, they, they really gained in popularity in the mid-90s with Settlers of Catan and, and, and things like that. So that's, that's the time I switched as board gaming being my primary primary hobby about seven or eight years ago now uh, when my full-time career wasn't working out I had uh, an idea that I would basically leave my full-time employment start my own company and start producing videos on teaching people how to play games gaming rules was formed and I've not had a day off since so (laughs) I'm not complaining what I'm saying is it, it was a very big risk and we act because I was I was an IT manager. I'd had a, a team of 15 people. It was a well-paid job. So it was a risk for me to step away from that and basically start something that was, to all intents and purposes, a crazy idea that has no chance of working out. But thankfully, it, it has worked out. Um, and a lot of people know me from my rulebook editing. Mm-hmm. And the rulebook editing was not the reason why I set up gaming rules. Gaming Rules was formed to create the instructional videos that I'm also known for. But the rulebook editing kind of I kind of fell into it because I dabbled a bit and the more I dabbled and the more that I did, the more people started talking about me. And, you know, there are some people now who know Paul Grogan, the rulebook editor, and don't realize that I make videos. So that kind of has been a success on its own. Um, And I think Gaming Rules primarily is now instructional videos, rulebook editing, uh, and also I do a lot of um, non-sponsored videos on the channel, lots of playthroughs and reviews and things like that as well. So, yeah, uh, it, it's a full-time thing for me. Now, as I say, I've, I've not had a day off in six years. Um, <laughs> well, it's I, great. I, 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 I like the, 
I like the um because uh, it, it's now it's obviously very obvious to you that um you were always going to end up editing rule books because uh, because you were looking back I'm, i assume yeah because, because once you i guess once you start teaching from rule books you're you're always going to be there kind of editing their phrasing just a little bit because they've not been as clear as they need to be yeah i mean i i didn't used to now i can't help it now i pick up a rule book and pull and people say just pull read the rule book and i'm like oh 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 and i can't i can't turn it off but i'm thinking back to you know 10 15 years ago when i was open quotes just a gamer i was probably being critical of those rule books then without actually knowing mm, it that's it um because you know like you we read a rule book, we want it to be clear. We want to yeah. be able to read the rule book and then go and play the game. We don't want ambiguities. We don't want mm. questions. We don't want frustrations of having to, you know, go onto Board Game Geek or watch a video or anything like that. So I guess bad rule books always used to annoy me. Uh, and then, as I say, I, I kind of accidentally fell into it as a career. Yeah. That's, um, uh, should we actually, should we just dive straight into to bad rule yeah. books? Because, yeah. um, because that is a, uh, uh, endless point of um at this point i feel like it's confusion in my life like why yeah. why are why are rule books bad still um and i think it's often because uh a variety of things but i think translation is one issue translation is one issue yeah um, uh yeah because yeah, the number of um uh, typos we see in rule books is uh, uh i think mostly down to just translation yeah yeah um and then um but then the other half of it where you know the native language is english yeah. Um, uh, I'm still, I still do things where I'm looking through a rule book and saying like, why isn't this section in the earlier yes. section next to the thing yeah, it's yeah, about? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just like layout and stuff like that. So why, why are, why are rule books like this? There's, there's so many factors. <laughs> I mean, yeah. The, what, so if you're going to put a gun to my head and say, Paul, what's the main factor why rule books are bad? Yeah. I would say it's because the people creating the rule book don't, uh, realize and underestimate how much work and time and effort it is. And this is why you see uh, some games on Kickstarter from new independent publishers that all look very, very fancy, you know, with, with miniatures and fancy artwork and everything else. And then the game comes out and the rule book is awful. It's because the people behind it don't realize. And if you'd have asked me 10 years ago, I wouldn't have realized. Well, in fact, no, 10 years ago, I, I was starting to get involved and I started to learn how much work it was. It's a huge amount of work. And it, it isn't just one person. You know, I get a lot of credit for my rule books being good. It's not just me. It's me and another group of people who go in, reread what I've written, double check it, say, Paul, this sentence makes no sense. And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. And, and fix things. And we're not talking typos here. Typos is one thing, but that's actually, that's proofreading. What I do is a step, a step higher than that, which is the editing and the structure of a rule book. Uh, so yeah, underestimating how long it takes to write a rule book and how much work is involved and blind testing the rule book, you know, getting the rule book in front of people who don't know how to play the game and saying, there you go, you try and play the game from that rule book and I'm going to sit in the corner and I'm going to watch and I'm not going to say anything and I'm going to make notes. That is an essential part of the process and yet it's hardly ever done. Yeah, yeah. It's, so, um, I, there's a couple of things here, which is I like... Um, so I've I've recently um, cracked open the uh, uh, Dark Souls card game. Um, okay, which I, that, which I think is a, actually a very good rule book. Uh, okay, that, but that might be lent, but that might be me leaning on the um, the fact that um, and you probably did you edit this one? <laughs> I, I had nothing to do with this one. I've, I've played the board game once, yeah. and it was one of the worst games that I've ever played. <laughs> <laughs> but I've heard the card game is better. The card game is very good. It's it's right. kind of based on um, Dark Souls three, and because I have knowledge, good knowledge of that game, yeah, uh, that video game, um, I think that helps me a lot with it. But that's a right. nice, very clear rule book, and because it's, I, but it's not one that holds your hand particularly. But okay. because you because it's because of its clarity, um, you trust it, and you're like, okay, we'll get to the, right. we'll get to explaining. I think that's something that a lot of rule books don't do, which is mm -hmm. they don't prove themselves to you early. Yeah. Um, in in you know, like explaining a core concept, tell you what you can do, tell you how you win. Because yeah. I think a lot of the time you, especially in Euros, because it's the last thing you do, the points score, mm -hmm. <laughs> which should be maybe at the front, <laughs> um, is often at the back of the book. Yeah. Uh, so um, if you're doing the uh, the sort of casual, oh, let's play and work it out as we go, um, which uh, 
Maybe we should. I do. Yeah. I oh, do. do you? Oh, do you? I do. I do that all the time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, then uh, I find that um, you get to the end and everyone goes, oh, I should have been doing that. Yeah. Wait a minute. <laughs> the person with the most stone at the end wins. Yes. You didn't tell me that. <laughs> no, yeah, no. <laughs> Says me with a pile of 17 stone in front of me, never, never having built anything in no, the whole exactly. game. Yeah. Yes, uh, yeah. But um, uh, and there's that. And then I've, I've also recently played the um, DC deck building game. And that had this strange thing in the rule book where clearly someone had brought something up in some kind of testing mm-hmm. so there's a couple of um uh did you do this one no okay just before, no, I, just before, I, just, I immediately <laughs> yeah always, always safe to check <laughs> yeah uh before i say something but someone they've obviously tested something and then um and it's a very good game they've obviously tested something but each there's so many paragraphs that started with don't do this which oh, okay. means that someone's obviously put their hand up and said, we need to make it very clear. And I said, okay, right. well, we'll put that at the start. We'll immediately say, don't do this. So how do people end up in these situations? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the, the language thing is, is an interesting one, just going back to that. For, for me, any publisher that produces a rule book in English that doesn't get a native English speaker to check it, well, they should, right? Yeah. Because, and, and I don't mean hire me, anybody, and even just a proofreader, and I, and I, I don't mean pro- just a proofreader in a like a, a negative way. But what I'm saying is there are proofreading services available for non. For, it doesn't have to be a gamer. If we're if we're checking grammar and spelling and typos, that for me is inexcusable in a rule book. But yeah. again, I can see why it happens. People are rushing and and, and everything else. Um, but the other thing as well is where the words aren't completely clear mm-hmm. in one language. The translator gets them, thinks they understand what it means, ends up writing it in their language. And you see this all the time. You see this online, even on rule books that I've done the English version of. People have said, Paul, I've got the French version of the rule book. And the French version tells me that I only get the bonus after I've passed space three. Your version of the rule book says you get the bonus when you reach space three. That's and I'm it. like, mine's correct. That The fact that that translator picked it up misinterpreted that and then put it into their own. This is how things happen. The other big thing as well, and this is more of a behind the scenes thing that I only realized uh, when I started working in the industry is, and this is all to do with the production cycle of a game. In order to get your game delivered to either, you know, Essen, the shops or the backers Hmm. on the right timeline, you have a project plan. And that project plan has creation of the rule book in usually one language. Hmm. And then it goes off to the translators. Now, depending on the complexity of the game, those translators will need that rule book for two weeks, eight weeks, possibly even three months for a big, complicated game. So you've got to get that rule book to them three months before it needs to be printed for them to be able to translate it. Well, quite often, we're still working on the rule book at that time. And this is what can sometimes happen. So one of the games that I'm working on right at the moment, which is a 120-page rule book in Google Doc form, so it's probably going to be about 50 or 60 anyway, it's had to go to the translators, and the game is still being developed. So what we've had to do is we've had to put into place a procedure with the rule book to say, here's the rule book as it was given to the translators. Every other change that it now gets made to the rule book gets tracked. So we make the change in the English rulebook and all of the translators get a weekly update to say, please note, this rule has changed. Now, if those translators are doing a good job, they read that email and they go, oh, they've changed that rule. Right. I'll go back to my German version of the rulebook and I'll change it. If they don't and if they just don't see those emails or don't bother or whatever, then that's how you get errors made. And what's frustrating from a games publisher side of things is they don't know. They don't no. you know, They don't speak German, right, for example. So the German rulebook comes out and everybody on the German forums goes, this rulebook's rubbish, and the publishers gets the blame for it. And they're like, well, we hired a German translator. We've no idea whether it's any good or not because we don't speak German. So, yeah, rulebooks in different languages. <clears throat> ten, 10 or 15 years ago, I was frustrated and angry as to, well, not really angry, but confused and frustrated as to why the rules were different in different languages. Mm. Now I understand what goes on behind the scenes. There's still, yeah, I'm not saying that it's an excuse for it, but there's a reason for it, and it's it's not ideal. Yeah. So um, making them good, Mm. a difficult task. But I I, I, I always, I think the things I like are, you know, clarity. Yeah. uh, 
things being organized sensibly. Mm-hmm. Um, something on the back of the rule book that has a picture of all the symbols. <laughs> that's that's usually a good thing, or or a second or a re- reference sheet or yeah, something like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, one of the one of the big uh, problems that I see in rule books a lot, and I'm and I'm still seeing it now, is front loading of information. And I, I'm on like a a crusade against <laughs> against front loading information. Um, and it, it the, the the concept of front loading information is basically. Oh, we've got a load of important rules. These are kind of so important, we need to get them in early. Mm. Okay, so we'll fill the first X number of pages with front loading. Now, if it's a little bit of front loading, like here's an important concept in the game, right? Squares on the board are considered adjacent if they're next to each other, but not Mm. diagonally. Yeah. And you're going to earn points for coins, right? There you go, done. Now let's move on to the rules. That's okay. But two, four, six pages of front-loading information of like, right, here's some really important concepts that you need to know. Before you even know what the structure of the game is, is is really bad. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I see it a lot. I think it's a problem. I avoid it in my rule books where possible. Um, but, you know, it's just it's just one of those things. And I, I yeah, I, I'm, I'm a bit puzzled as a, as a gamer why most people, or why a lot of people creating rule books don't see it as an issue because they mm. keep doing it. They keep repeating the information. I feel. I feel like maybe it's even that they are feeling that there's no other option. Mm-hmm. You know, like and they, there is another option. There is. There is definitely another option. And, and they're just doing a hierarchy of information. And yeah. You start at the front. <laughs> you know, um, to the and then you have the least important thing at the end. You know, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think. I think that's right. So um, one of the other things I want to talk about is uh, what I'm. What I termed earlier. Uh, as the uh, the pain of teaching, yeah, uh, or the pleasure of being taught, uh, and you said you haven't you haven't been taught for a long time, so actually, <laughs> yeah. So if if we go back to the early eighties, right? Yeah. Paul was the guy. Paul was the kid who got the games, and we all went round to Paul's house on a Saturday afternoon because he had a big dining room and a big table, yeah. and we played games there. So for the last thirty seven, thirty eight years, in every gaming group that <laughs> I've ever been a member of, I've been generally speaking, 99% of the time, the teacher of the games. Mm. I don't mind that, okay? I absolutely love teaching people how to play games. So for me, it's not a problem. Um, a lot of people have said I am a good teacher, so that I've kind of I kind of fallen into that role, mm. um, and it, it, it stuck with me. So for me, I have a lot of pleasure of teaching games. Now, something happened to me, I think it was about seven or eight years ago now. I went to a UK convention called Manacon. Manacon happens every year. It's been running for like 36, 37 years. Obviously, it's had a year's break. Um, It may be back this summer. We don't quite know yet. Um, But it it was Manacon about seven years ago. And it's a four-day convention, and it's in Loughborough, or Lugabruga, if you're listening to this in America. Um, And I went to this convention, and I was there for like, I don't know, yeah, 14, 16 hours a day, every day. And the only game I actually played was a game of concept on the last day just before I left. Okay. I spent four days teaching people how to play games. <laughs> and that's all. And I, and, I, and, I, and I played concept. And on the way home, I was like, and we talked about on the way home, we talked, oh, what, what was your favorite game that you played this weekend? And it suddenly hit me. I went, well, I've had a brilliant time. But all I've done all weekend <laughs> is teach other groups of people. And that was a turning point for me. That was the point where I realized, I mean, I kind of knew it all along, but I'd never accepted it, mm. that I enjoy teaching people how to play games either as much, just as much, or even possibly more <laughs> than the process of actually playing a game. So for me, I'm quite lucky. And the people in my gaming group are also lucky because they've got somebody who actually... Who who actually enjoys it? Yeah. Um, I think that's, I think that's right. I mean, I I say to people like the greatest gift you can give me is to read the rule book for me. Uh, right. Uh, <laughs> like yeah, I'll, I'll send you the PDF. You're you're going around this weekend. Can I give you this one to teach me? Yeah. Uh, and they, and if if they do that, um, they are uh, uh, they're, they're you know. It's, you know, it's, it's better than bringing a cake or something. Right. Uh, <laughs> now, if they brought cake as well, that would be there brilliant. There we go. That's it. Yes. Well, I'm going to touch on this. When we talk about mm. my top five tips for teaching games, I'm going to refer back to this later on. Um, uh, but I, I, I think um, there, there is a, the pleasure of being taught well. Um, yeah. Is, is, is very important. I think it's something we, um, I, I don't think we talk about it that much because I think we, I think a lot of groups see it as like a necessary evil. 
mm-hmm. um, to, to for someone to read the rule book. Yeah, but being taught well, as if you've all, because when you are taught well, it feels as if you already knew all of this yeah. stuff, and that's that's perfect, um, uh, like expression of it. Um, I suppose actually, maybe now's a good time to do a top five. Okay, uh, <laughs> we can we can jump into that. Yeah. Um, because my first point actually follows on quite nicely from this. It's like we'd planned it. Yeah, <laughs> we haven't. We but... haven't no. <laughs> um, right. So, um, so Paul, what is your top five about? So, before the top five, I just wanted to yeah. mention oh, yes. uh, a couple of things before we start. First of all, what I'm going to give you now is clearly my opinion, uh, and some people are going to disagree with this. But, and I'm not saying you can't disagree with that. That's fine. But following on from what I mentioned earlier on, that I've been teaching games for a very long time. I actually teach games professionally as well. In other words, I'm I'm a member of certain demo teams at conventions, but not just like a member of the demo team. For Czech Games Edition, I was put in charge of not only being their primary demo person, but also training all of the other demo staff on how to teach games. Not just how mm. to play the game, but how to teach the game. So this is like the entire crew at Gen Con, which is like 45 people, it was my job to train them hmm. on how they teach particular games. And what I did is about, about five or six years ago now, I did a couple of years of research because I kept hearing all of these stories coming back from Essen. Hmm. Oh God, I had this terrible demo. Oh, I, the, yeah. I had this worst teacher ever. And I thought, this is something I wanna do something about. So I spent a couple of years, probably possibly about 18 months, speaking to i even i even went out of my way and the people who posted on bgg forums and said i i had a terrible demo of such and such a game i contacted them and i actually interviewed all these people and spoke to them spoke to loads of local people as well and found out what was it about that demo why it was so bad and what i did is i collated all of this information and i have used that to better myself as a teacher but also come up with uh guidelines, hints, and processes on, on how you can best approach teaching games as well. So the information I'm going to give you is not just some random guy's thoughts. I've actually spent a lot of time thinking about this. <laughs> okay, so the first the first one I've got on my list, top five tips on teaching games, is first of all, realize that it isn't the responsibility of the person who bought the game to teach the game. Yes. This follows on what you said. <laughs> Some people are better at games than teaching others. And just because you happen to be the one who bought the game, there is an assumption that, right, Chris has just bought a copy of this. We'll go around to his house and Chris is going to teach us how to play. Right. Mm. If you are a terrible teacher of games and you know it and all of your friends know it, it should not fall on you to do it. So what you said earlier on, say, look, guys, I'm, I'm rubbish at teaching games. I've just bought DC legendary deck building game. You know, I can't teach games. Here's the PDF. Yeah. Brian, you're really good at teaching games. Can you have a read through the rule book? And Brian will be like, yeah, sure. So the responsibility doesn't always have to fall to the people who buy the actual game. The other thing, and this is touching on something else you said earlier on, I did something, this is going back about two or three years now, as an experiment. I mean, it wasn't a deliberate experiment, right? I'd bought a game. I can't remember even what the game was, but I'd bought this game and I was super excited about it. And I really wanted to play it. And people were coming around on the Friday night and we were all super excited to play it. And I had a really busy week and it got to Friday and I went, I haven't read the rules, right? Yeah, We've yeah. got this game. We all want to play it. Haven't read the rules. So what happened? I said, look, you've got a choice. We can either play a different game that I either know how to play and I can teach you, or we sit here and we open the game up together and we open the rule book together and we literally learn it together from the rule book. Now, I know some people listening to this, their their toes are already curling, yeah. if that's the right <laughs> phrase, because they think, oh my God, there's nothing, that sounds horrendous, right? And it worked. Now it worked for me, it might not work for you and your group, but for us, it worked. We all went into it accepting this is what we were gonna do. And it was a shared experience. And and Rob, a good friend of mine, Rob, he took charge, he, he got the rule book and he started reading it and he did a really good job. I mean, he was just reading it, but then we got to a bit and I said, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. What's this bit about? And we actually collectively learned how to play the game. Now it did take longer, mm-hmm. but it was great and it worked. And since then I've done, I've done it a number of times. Yeah. As long as everybody agrees up front, this is what you're gonna do. 
then then it's great. Yeah. I think um, I think you're right there. I think I, I like um, and the um, apologies. If this might be one of your tips. I'm not sure, um, but uh, if I'm doing that that sort of teach, um, I end up having to do. It's more like we're playing a scavenger hunt. I'm like, right. Okay. We need the uh, we need the the uh, power tokens. Okay. What looks like a power token to you? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, this deck needs shuffling. Uh, this needs splitting out into four different piles. Uh, yeah, yep. that sort of thing. And everyone that. gets everyone gets their own little part of it. Yep. Yeah, uh, and that's yeah a much more um, it's a much better a much more involved experience. And also, you find it, even if you if you're doing like a I, I find if if I'm doing like a hard teach or like a mm-hmm. direct you know I've read the rule book I know exactly what's going to go on I'm going to uh, do this like a press conference. Um, uh, even then, having individual people who are like feel they're in charge of the season deck in yeah. you know Rising Sun or something, um, yeah. uh, they then you'll find that those people will then go when it comes to something coming up. They'll say, "Oh no, no, the seasons are broken yeah. into four, four, well, three, yeah, and then exactly. we have a winter turn." And we go, "Yeah, exactly, that's right." And then, you know, yeah, uh, share the responsibility around so- and, and make sure each person has ownership of a particular thing that they understand and they can be an expert in. That's it. That's it. Yeah. So my second one, <clears throat> so this is, yeah, moving on from this, let's say you're now teaching a game that you know how to play. The overall approach of teaching a game should be, and this is going to be so obvious, but people still forget it, is you start at the very, very high level, the bird's eye view, and then you zoom into the detail later on. So <clears throat> I always start with the theme. Now, I'm somebody who has gone on record and said the theme of a game doesn't really matter to me, okay? Mm. Because I'm all about the the game mechanisms and how it works and everything else. I don't mind boring Euro point salads with the theme pasted on. But even in those, you should describe the theme. So Mm -hmm. we're all ranchers. We're gonna be traveling to Kansas with a herd of cows. We're gonna be collecting more cows along the way. And then when we get to Kansas, we're gonna sell those cows for money. uh, And then we're gonna be building buildings on the route and we're, we're cowboys in the old west. Right, there you go done. We've set the setting. We've laid the setting of the game. Even if you never mention the setting again, you lay it at the start, you know, explain to people what the game's about, what they are, what they're going to be doing at a very, very high level. Then you go down and you actually explain the structure of the game. Is it divided into seasons, rounds? How many rounds are there? You know, if there isn't a fixed number of rounds, explain when the game ends, the game ends when the deck runs out, or the game ends after six rounds, whatever. Uh, Explain the overall flow of the game within each round. We're going to take it in turns around the table to do actions until we all pass. You know, that that kind of thing. So gradually you drill down into the detail. Make sure you cover how you win the game early on. You don't need to go into details. Just pulling up what you said earlier on about Euro games putting the the detailed scoring in the back of the rulebook. The detailed scoring, I think, still should be in the back of the rulebook. But early on, there should be a, you're trying to earn points and you're going to earn points roughly by doing this, okay? Uh, You don't need to mention, oh, and every corn token you've got left at the end of the game is worth a third of a point. You don't don't need to mention that at the start because it's like too much information. Um, So mention how the game ends, mention how you win. And then after that, you can then start saying, right, so on your turn, you perform these three steps in order. Then you start going down into the detail. Um, and that that's basically the approach that I think you should use for pretty much mm. every game. Start high level and then go down into the detail. Yeah, I think um, just to come back to theme, I always think theme is a really good little bridge as well. So if people, yeah. um, for, for like for a well, you know, meshed game where the theme and rules come together nicely yeah um, leaning on the theme when you're not quite sure about a rule mm-hmm. um, is is usually quite good because if it makes sense within the theme yes um you know that uh as you, your example was um uh, your cowboys and you're building building things on the route and then yep. the question and then the question is okay so uh, can I buy things after this point? Well, no, because they're on the route. They're not at our destination yeah. where we are now. So, and then that's, oh, the theme explains the rules yep. to you. Um, and that's, I think that's a really good thing that, yes, people forget that yeah. you, you can you can use theme in this way. You don't have to just break it down into the spreadsheet. You know? Absolutely. <laughs> if, if there is a thematic explanation for the rule, lean on it. Yeah. Definitely lean on it. Definitely use it because thematic explanation in rules not only for me makes the game more enjoyable to play, but it makes the rules easier to play. And the classic example, uh, and I and I've used this all of the time because I've demoed this game 
you know, at big events for Czech Games Edition is Dungeon Pets. So in Dungeon Pets, at the start of each round, you create a set of uh, basically bids. Okay, but what it is 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 groups of shoppers, and a group of shoppers can be one or more imps with any number of gold. Okay. Now, it doesn't matter whether it's an imp or a gold. It still counts as a bid of one. So in other words, if you've got three imps with two gold, that's a bid of five. Okay, you can send imps shopping on their own. You don't have to send them with gold. But what you can't do is you can't send gold shopping on its own. Why? And then you pick up the gold counter and you say, because it hasn't got any legs. (laughs) And everybody laughs. Right. But there's the rule. Yeah. So everybody remembers it. Right. So I'm making I'm making these groups of shoppers. I'm going to put some imps over there, some imps over there. These imps are going to have this gold. I can't send gold on its own. And it, it works because obviously gold cannot can, cannot go shopping on its own. <laughs> and suddenly everybody remembers it. So, yeah, if you can grab a bit of theme and explain it and, and even some of the most abstract Euro games, mm. there is theme in there. And if we go back to Great Western Trail just for a minute, or cows across America, as we call it. One of the rules in Great Western Trail is when you arrive at Kansas, you sell your cows, but you can only sell a maximum of one cow of each type. Mm-hmm. So if you've turned up to Kansas with two black, a green, and a brown, mm-hmm. you can only sell one black, a green, and a brown. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of people complain that that's not thematic, mm-hmm. but you can just explain it and say, the guy at Kansas is really fussy. He only wants to buy a maximum of one of each. And, and suddenly... Everybody remembers, oh, yeah, yeah, that guy. Yeah, Dave. Yeah, Dave's funny like that. And suddenly, you know, you make a joke out of it or whatever. And there can be a thematic explanation for it if you want there to be. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, What's at number three? Number three is, in my opinion, your first game of a game is always a learning game. Yep. Do stuff, experiment, but basically play quick. And this is because I've heard so many horror stories of people saying, oh, we played such and such a game for the first time and it took us six hours. And I'm like, that's a 90 minute game. (laughs) Now, one of the phrases that I've heard from a number of people, and if any of those people are listening to this, they're going to be unhappy with what I'm about to say. The phrase that I've heard is, but I want to be competitive from game one. And that phrase, I I understand it. I, I get where they're coming from because... We all have limited time to play games. There's too many games and not enough time. And if you're going to play a game, I totally get the I want to be competitive from game one because they think playing a game as a write-off, which is what I'm effectively suggesting it is, is a waste of time. That, that's what their thinking is. Now, my thinking is if a game takes 90 minutes to play, your first game of it should be about two, two and a half hours. Just go into it. Just do stuff. Because... To be honest, even when you know all of the rules of a game, do you actually have any idea about how to play the game from a strategy point of view? No, you don't know. You only learn that by playing the game and then getting to the end of the game and going, oh, well, I've got 17 stone. I didn't build anything. Mm. Oh, leftover resources are not worth any points. Right. I know that now. Yeah. Next time I play. But the point is, you've done it in two, two and a half hours and not six hours. Yes. That's and, and, and that painful experience because everybody around the table is like oh i don't get much time to play games therefore i want to be competitive from game one therefore every play of a game matters so i'm we're going to sit here for six hours agonizing over every decision for it to count as a proper game whereas what they could do is just play a quick game you could even just play half a game you know set the game up learn it play half a game and go right we all know what's going on we all know that you need to build buildings and not keep the stone yet right put it away set it up again and play. And within that six hours, you will have actually played half of a game which you then throw away and then a full game. Yeah, I, I've done that before uh, a couple right. of times because, just because it, it helps. Because um, the other option for people who are, who, who do do want to like feel that all their choices matter from the start is say, yeah. you say, okay, so we did that. You can take that, take that move back if you want. Yes, you oh, I allow that all the yeah, time. Absolutely. Yeah. But it's also, everyone feels they're cheating then. As well, that's what I that's what I feel. Um, my groups feel like anyway. Um, so I I do like to do. I occasionally do that thing of uh, yes, let's play a bit and I go. Okay, we've all kind of got it, haven't we? Right, let's start again. Yeah. yeah. Is, is and, everyone and, happy and, with their clan? You know, whatever. And I know so many people have said to me that won't work for them because they feel that they've just wasted their time. But as I say, the reality is, 
if you play it quickly, get it out of the way, stop it after a round or whatever, mm -hmm. reset it up and then play properly, it will have taken you the same total time. Yeah. But in that second game, everybody will actually have an idea of what they're doing. Yeah. So, yeah, definitely, definitely recommend that. Uh, and it sounds like you've done that yourself as well. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Point number four is when teaching a game, and this is another thing that, <laughs> that some people are going to disagree with, do not be afraid of saying, I'll come back to this later on. That's it. Yep. Now, I saw a thread on a social media post about a month ago from somebody who I know and somebody who I respect and I like them and I respect their opinions. And they said, whatever you do when you're teaching a game, never, ever say, I'll come back to this later on. Because when you do, you have instantly lost your audience and they will no longer listening to anything else you're saying. Right. Mm. And I could not disagree with what they said more. Um, You've got to be careful. If you've got a group of people sat around the table and they're going, uh, Paul, how do we win again? I'll come back to that later on. But <laughs> Paul, Paul, you've been talking to us now for 10 minutes. Please tell us how you win. I'll come back to that later on. Okay. You're going to lose your audience. Yeah. Right. But if depending on the game. So, for example, if we pick Zolkin, right, I'm going to mm. I'm going to I'm going to explain to you, Zolkin, high level, the game's played over two years, or sorry, it's four quarters. It's divided into four quarters, two eras, divided in each era is divided in half. So there's four things in the game. And at the end of every quarter, you're going to have to feed your people. Mm. Now, I'll explain the feeding of rules later on, but just so you know, you need two corn per person. And I'll explain what happens later if you don't have the corn, right? Move on. Yeah. Because we're just starting to explain the game. We don't want to be explaining all of the detailed rules about if you if you don't manage to feed your people, you move this this one down on this track. You have to take a load. Right. You, you don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. You need to plant the information early that every quarter of the game, there's a feeding phase. If you don't feed your people, you're going to get in trouble. I'll explain it more later on. And, and it's knowing when to do it. But don't be afraid of it. But watch your audience. Yeah. Uh, if your audience are getting very, very you know, as I say, really, really important things, then you might need to do it. I think also what you're also highlighting there is the idea that you're going to give them like the summary of um, how they should approach the game. Yeah. In terms of, um, and they might decide later after, you know, a couple of playthroughs, actually that's not the right way to do it. But for the learning game, knowing that something bad happens if you don't feed your people, is actually probably all you're going to actually retain during that yeah, first game. Exactly. <laughs> you know, even if you know that um, you, uh, you know, two pieces of bread per person and also the the effects that come of not feeding your people within the yeah. riots and so on. Um, uh, yeah, so I think, I think that's a, like a really good, that's a really yeah. good one. <laughs> I mean, the other, the other one as well is I, I've seen this done. I've watched people teaching games at conventions uh, and you, you've got a, a standard Euro game with icons all over the board mm. and people are going, you know, halfway through your explanation of a particular thing. They're going, what does this icon do here? Mm. Well, if you allow your flow of information to be interrupted mm. by a side tangent about an icon that is going to require a five minute explanation that doesn't apply except under the extreme circumstances, right? Yeah. No. Right. You, you can't allow that. And that's that's what I'm saying is a good teach involves the flow of information and the right information at the right time with a bit of flexibility. Mm -hmm. And if you allow yourself to get drawn off at tangents, then that's the thing. And, and going back to this icon, I might say I might deal out these 12 cards on into an offer and I'll explain the cards and I'll say now you, you've probably noticed some of these cards have a big red skull in the bottom right corner. <laughs> Because if you don't mention it, people have seen it and people are thinking it and they're not listening to what you're saying because all they can see is these red skulls yeah. and they're waiting for you to say it. So what I do is I drop the information out. So you might notice some of these cards have red skulls in the bottom right hand corner. Now, don't worry about that for now. I will explain that before we start playing. Oh, right. OK. And they go, right. That's all right. Paul's going to explain it later. We can we can we can we can move on to the next bit. So, yeah, don't be afraid of that. Very good. Point five. I had another one as well that I was thinking about. Oh, we could do six. I thought, I, I thought it was part <laughs> of. So point five um, is is my particular method for teaching games at conventions. Uh, mm. This is something that I came up with after that research that I did. 
Uh, and this is a this is a special method. And I, I, I would say don't try this at home. <laughs> Literally. Because, yeah, because I have known friends of mine try this method and it absolutely fail. Mm. So the method works, but you have to be an absolute expert at the game in order to use the method. And it works best in a convention environment. Mm. Now, I have used it at home. If you came around, Chris, and you said, Paul, I've been speaking to Vlada Shavatel and Vlada says, Paul Grogan is the best person in the world at teaching through the ages. Okay, that's a that's a little bit of a, a, of a plug for me because Vlada has actually said that. To me. Um, and you said, Chris, uh, you said, Paul, I all I've always wanted to learn how to play through the ages. Will you teach me how to play? And I'll say yes, Chris, and I will use my method. Right, I will not teach through the ages without using my method of teaching games, even outside of a convention environment, because I think it's still the best method. For, for teaching that game. But the basic principle of, uh, of my teaching method, it, the official name is the, the Gaming Rules Interactive Drip Feed Method for teaching people how to play games at conventions. It, it, it needs to be a bit shorter. <laughs> but the basic principle is, in a convention environment where you're doing demo work for a publisher on a stand, it's busy, it's noisy, people don't have all day, they want to see your game, they want to get a demo of the game and see what it's like in order for them to make a decision about whether they are going to buy it or not and then move on. They do not want a 45 minute teach mm -hmm. and then you to walk away and move to the next table. And, and this is what happens and it still mm -hmm. happens. So the demo method is basically you start playing as soon as possible and you explain the rules literally as you go along, because this is a demo game. You're probably not going to play a full game. Mm -hmm. The objective of this demo is to show you how the game works and for you to experience it with as little rules overhead as possible. Mm -hmm. And that what that means is you start, you, you might give them one to two minutes at the start about how it works, and then you'll literally start playing and you'll explain things as they happen mm -hmm. and, and as they go along. Uh, and a lot of people don't like this method, but it's about, it's 95% of people do, because I've been using this method now for years. Mm -hmm. And I've, I've used it hundreds of times at Essen, Gen Con and everything else. And I always sit down with people and I explain, okay, you're here to play Pulsar 2849. Thank you very much for, for coming. I'm gonna be using this method for teaching you how to play the game. Mm -hmm. Literally over 90% of people have said, oh, brilliant, that's just what we want. Yeah. A few people, a few, I mean, like a handful of people in, in the years that I've been doing it have said, oh, no, we'd really like to know every single rule before we start playing. And I'm like, well, we could, but I'm going to talk to you for 30 minutes. And it was only one occasion where I did that. Mm. One occasion. It was late one night. It was the last demo. They were insistent. And, and that's what I did. Mm. Um, but yeah, the basic principle of it is accept the fact that this is a demo, demo game. Accept the fact that you're going to write off uh, the game as a learning game. And going back to what we were saying earlier on about maybe not even playing a full game, mm. This is why the method can work for you at home. So it was specifically designed for use at conventions, but it can work at home. So for example, you've got a game like Clans of Caledonia, right? Because I've got a story about Clans of Caledonia. There are eight different actions that you can do in the game. One of them is pass, so we won't bother with that one, right? Chris, you're taking the first turn of the game. Which action do you want to do? I mean, literally, you've, you've, mm. we've done the setup. You've no idea. Yeah. So you'll say, <laughs> well, I'll do that action. OK, because you, you literally just pick randomly because you've no idea. So what we do is we talk you through that action and we can say, oh, well, this action allows you to go and buy and sell from the market. So you've got four cubes. Which one do you want to buy? I've no idea. Well, I will look at your tiles and I'll go, well, I know that he needs milk and he doesn't have any milk. I might say, well, if you look at this contract here, you need milk. So how about you go and buy some milk? Oh, OK, Paul, I'll go and buy some milk. How do I do that? And we move your cubes and we do that. And we explain it and we, we you spend the money and you move the price down and you put a cube on. Bang. Everybody now knows how the market action works. Right. Mm, Sarah, what do you want to do? Sarah, you, oh, you want to put stuff on the board. Right. Let's explain how that action. And what you've done in the first two rounds of play. Although the players chose which action they wanted to do, they were making it. They were making a decision randomly. Mm. But by the end of two rounds of play, everybody now knows how all of the actions work. Mm -hmm. And then what you do is, because you've been explaining as you go, you're probably about 40 minutes in, mm. and you then say to people, right, well, do you, do you want to play yourselves now for, for another 20, 30 minutes? Yeah, yeah, sure. 
So then, then all oh, right, I'm going to go to the market and I'm going to I'm going to sell the milk because the price has gone up. I've now got some more money. Yeah, right, nice. And then you let them play for about another 20, 30 minutes, and then you say, right, has everybody now had a good idea of how the game plays? And they all go, yeah, we've had a, we, we we now have a good idea of how the game plays, even though their first actions in the game were pretty much random guesswork. Yes, sir. Yeah. It works. It, it absolutely works. And the story about Clans of Caledonia is funny because uh, Juma, the designer of Clans of Caledonia, contacted me about two weeks before the Essen where it was being released and said, Paul, one of his demo team has pulled out. Um, because I worked on the video for the game, would I help him out and do a shift one afternoon? And I said, yep, yeah, I'd love to because I get to wear a kilt. <laughs> and I basically said to him, I have a particular method for teaching games. And that's the method that I would like to use. And he said, well, that's perfect because he has his own method for using games, for teaching games. So we, we actually got together uh, and I told him about my method and he told me about his method. And what we came up with is we actually came up with a variation on what I've just described to you, where player one would do action number one. So I, didn't, I don't even give you the choice. Mm. I say, you're player one, you're doing action number one. I'm now going to explain how that action works. You're player two, you're going to do action number two. And we go around the table and we do that until all of the actions are covered. Yeah. And then everybody plays another round, taking whatever action they wanted to. Mm -hmm. And then that's the end of the demo. Okay. That took about 45 minutes. They then played for about another 10 minutes. And after an hour, they all went, right, we, we, we know how to play the game. And we actually played a bit. This is great. Some of them bought it. Some of them walked off. Mm -hmm. On the next table to me was another member of the demo team that at the time my demo had finished, he'd just finished explaining the rules. Yeah. He literally spent 45 minutes explaining every single rule of the game. Everybody was standing there. Nobody had moved a single piece on the board. And they're like, nobody. Well, I say nobody. Isaac Childress, Vlajish Shabbatel. There's, <laughs> there's a few people who can sit there and listen to 45 minutes of rules explanation <laughs> at a busy convention and take it all in. Uh, and I spoke to Juma afterwards and I said, um, I don't think that guy got the message that he was, yeah. And he was like, oh no. Because you could see the look on these people's faces. Yeah. They're listening to this guy talk for 45 minutes and it doesn't matter if he's a good teacher or not. Hmm. It's 45 minutes of being pounded with information yeah. when all you're there to do is see whether it's the kind of game you like or not. So, and it's, yeah, so, yeah, wrong yeah. place at the wrong time. So the the other thing that I did, um, I did remember, so this is point 4.5. Yeah. <laughs> we'll there, there are many, many games where the players have a choice at the start of the game. Hmm. So here's three objective cards. Choose one of them to keep hmm. and discard the other two. And that is the first thing you do in the game. Now, when you're learning the game, you haven't got the faintest idea. No, you don't right? know. So, <laughs> or even here's two special power cards. Mm. Choose one that's yours for the rest of the game. So every single time I'm playing one of those games for the first time, and this isn't in the rule book, but I ignore that part of the setup mm. and I say, you're just going to have a random one. Yeah. Because you're giving me you're giving me a choice between two or three things. I don't know the game. Mm -hmm. I've never played the game. I, I'm making a blind decision. You might as well just give me a card. So variable setup or play, player player choice setup in my first game, I generally ignore it and just and just get one at random. So, oh, do you do you find those um, things like objective cards good for the, good for teaching because it gives players a goal? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. And I know um, Rado has thoughts on this. Richard Ham. Mm -hmm. Um, because one of my favorite games that came out in 2015 was a game called Nippon uh, from um, Watch Your Game. And it's fantastic. As I say, it was one of my favorite games that came out that year. That year. Rado didn't like it because mm. it didn't have any initial goals or, or objectives or targets. Mm. It was a very much a sandbox game. It was extremely clever in the way that the players determined how much the things were worth at the end of the game for them mm -hmm. over the course of the game. Yeah. So you tailored your own end game scoring points during the game. But at the start of the game, you're, you're going into it and it's all just open. Um, and 
Rado has influenced some of the games that I've worked on. So, for example, uh, Vital Lacerda's On Mars game. Mm -hmm. There is, for your first game, there are these little mini objective cards. You don't use them when you're playing the game, the full game. Mm -hmm. But for your first game, you use these mini objective cards. Because On Mars is so wide open, Mm. you you will drown. In, in the amount of choices. And you've got this little mini objective card and it says, um, if you build an oxygen condenser, you'll get one money. Ooh. <laughs> so I'll build an oxygen condenser then, shall I? So yes, little mini objectives are really, really good in games. Uh, and what Vittel did he, he, is he put those in and said, use these for your first game because suddenly a person's choices that was 20 and now, oh, I, I've got a job. I, I've got to do this job. So, yeah, yeah, they definitely help with learning. Yeah, I think it's um, uh, just, and this is sort of a sidestep here, but um, I've uh, I've recently been playing the uh, alien role playing game, okay, uh, Char- Chariot of the Gods, the um, right. fir- their first scenario that has all these secret agendas in it. And I must okay. say, compared to other role playing games I've played with the same group, um, giving people these secret agendas uh, suddenly changes how they approach right. the game because right. traditionally my groups play role-playing games as sort of like basically escape rooms where they have to hit things right uh, you know um, but this suddenly people were doing quite unusual things for their own mm-hmm. character and uh it was it, it it's very good to motivate people and i think i think that's the same thing here giving people these early objective cards um yeah for, for that um even as you say in, in on mars that's a, that's a wonderful idea isn't it um basically just it's just a nudge in the right direction or, it, it a, is. or rather a direction yeah here's something <laughs> yeah of, of, of the 20 things to do here's here's the two things that if you do them will give you a little bonus and it, it just means and it also means you don't get the group think because i i've played so many games mm. where it's wide open at the start and player one says um Oh well, I'll 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 build a carpenter, and player yeah. two goes, oh, that looks good. I think I'll build a carpenter. Yes, player three says, no, I'm Spartacus, yes. and you end up with this group thing where everybody thinks, oh, well, that was good, so I'll do the same. Yeah, that's it. Whereas the objective cards shared, shuffled and shared out means that people will nat- people will be doing different things mm. because the cards have different stuff on them. So yeah, yeah, that's uh, fabulous. Well, um, thank you for joining us today, Paul. Um, it's been good. Uh, We've chatted. We have chatted. Um, mm. Now. Uh, where should we start? Should we start with what's next for you? Should we start with that? Oof, if that uh, is what? indeed a question that can be answered. Short term or medium term or, or long term? Do... <laughs> I can tell you what I'm doing this afternoon. Yeah, a little bit longer than that, but okay. less than what you're doing for Christmas. Yeah, so, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's all... So, I mentioned at the start, I've not had a day off in six years. This year is already fully booked. I'm I'm in a position now where I'm not really taking on any more work um, because my work for the year is is fully booked. I have lots of exciting projects that I'm working on. Um, I will be doing the tutorial videos for the first two games in the new Steffenfeld City collection. Nice. Um, and the reason why that's exciting news is I have been a Steffenfeld fan for well ever since I played his first game, which was probably Castles of Burgundy. No, it was probably in the Year of the Dragon actually. Or maybe Notre Dame. Anyway, <laughs> Stefan Feld is one of my favourite designers. Uh, and this year I'm getting to work on uh, the, fir- the the tutorial videos for the first two games in the City Collection, which is Hamburg and Amsterdam. That's going to be happening sometime around April or May time. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one of the things I'm going to be working on. I'm going to be working on the rulebook for Frostpunk, uh, which was successful on Kickstarter last year. It looks really um, good. Yeah, I mean, I'm a massive fan of the computer game. And if we're talking about settings mm. which give me a not necessarily a warm fuzzy feeling inside because <laughs> frostpunk is a very very dark a dark setting but it's a very um it, it's a setting which evokes a lot of emotions in me and I, I feel very you know when i'm playing the computer game it's, it's humanity's struggle and you've got the sort of the cross between victorian uh, london and and the steampunk side of things i just i just love it so yeah very very excited to be working on the rule book for that mm-hmm. uh, next week I'm going to be starting work on Vital Lacerda's new game, uh, Weather Machine. Ooh, I'm going to be doing some development work on that. And I've been working with Vital now for five or six years. And that's always that's always going to be exciting. So, yeah, I've got I've got a lot of projects lined up for later this year. Some of them are just uh, bread and butter stuff. But there are some which I am personally very excited about being involved in. So, yeah, that's that's good. And based on the news that came out from the government last week, 
we have an end in sight yes. to the current global pandemic. Now, we, we don't know. I mean, the government have said this is the date where they're hoping to ease restrictions. We do not know. It's still mm. it, it, it's a line in the sand and it might move based on based on what happens. Um, but uh, I run my own convention twice a year. Mm. Next week, we have a conversation with the hotel about when summer grid con is going to happen. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's going to happen at the original time that was planned, mm-hmm. which is actually one week after the proposed lockdown ends. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think we're going to be able to do it then. But I'm already getting quite excited now about the fact that we can start returning to uh, physical conventions. Yes, which no, be good. I'm absolutely desperate to meet some people in person. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's uh, it's um, my my last convention was um, Aircon. Right, you were there, were you? I was there. That was so. That was, and that was just moments before the doors slammed. You almost got. You almost got sent home on the Saturday. That's, um, that's yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Um, and that was, uh, yes, that was uh, wild. Um, but yes, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing some people playing some games. Yeah, in I mean, I, I don't think a lot of the big conventions mm. will happen this year. I, I don't think something like Gen Con is still going to happen because something yeah. like Gen Con is, is, is months and months of preparation anyway. And yeah. I think they've already resigned themselves to the fact that, and obviously things in America are different from the yeah. UK. Um, UK Games Expo, not sure. They've got a sort of midway point, haven't they, where they might yeah. do a social distancing ticket thing, uh, which is interesting, an interesting way to approach it. it. And, um, I'm, I'm interested to see how people react to it in the long term, if, it does, yes. if, that, if that does go ahead. Um, because uh, if they can prove it can be done, that's quite impressive. Um, yeah, yeah. So. If they can, then I'll, I'll I'll definitely make an effort to be there and absolutely. support them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, cool. So, um, where can we find you online? Have you got anything else you'd like to plug? Um, not really. Um, only to mention, if we're talking about plugging, a lot yeah. of the work I do is paid for. So the rulebook work that I do in the in the industry is paid for. Uh, a lot of the tutorial videos that I create are paid for because they take me between 30 and 50 hours to create. So that that's paid for. However, on the side of all of that, I produce a lot of content which is not paid for. So on average, I probably spend about two days a week, uh, so about 40% of my time, producing stuff which is not paid for by any publishers, mm-hmm. um, which is playthrough videos, uh, all, all sorts of other content on my channel. And that is funded through a Patreon campaign that I run. Mm-hmm. So I basically, ha- I, I wear multiple hats. One hat I wear is for the for the paid work that I do. Um, and the other hat that I wear is I produce content which is funded purely through the Patreon. So last night, for example, uh, I did a live Q&A for about 90 minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do that once a month. And then I did a three hour stream of me playing Maracaibo. Now they, those weren't paid for whatsoever, but preparation for those streams yeah. and obviously doing the streams themselves takes me away from the paid work, which is why I rely on, on the Patreon. So yeah. If you're basically check out the channel, it's youtube.com slash gaming rules videos. Have a look. Obviously, I've got lots of tutorial videos. Um, you know, they're there if you want to learn how to play a game. But certainly check out some of the other content that I've made. Um, and yeah, see if you want to support the channel. Yeah, lovely. All right. Well, um, thank you very much, Paul. And uh, I hope to speak to you soon. And I hope to see you in person soon. That's going to be the absolute dream. Yeah, well, well, we'll find out when that's going to be. Um, but yeah, it's been it's been good to chat to you today. It's given me a break from the video that I'm, I'm working on at the moment. But yeah, good to speak to you. And well, I, I hope to see you later on this year. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cool. Right. Thanks very much. Thank you very much.